الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحابه ومن استنى بسنة رحم الدين. All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on His last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. As my brother introduced the topic, the way is one. This topic addresses not only how we approach Islam itself, but the very concept of Islam within the religions of the world. That when we approach da'wah, we're going to convey Islam to others, to non-Muslims. We all know that the essence of the message is the oneness of Allah, Tawheed. So we fundamentally have to convince people, bring them over to the idea that Allah is one. And that may be difficult or easy depending on the person that we are addressing the message to. If they don't believe in God at all, then we have to get them to accept the idea of God. Or if they are from uh, polytheistic backgrounds like Hindus, then we have to get them to the idea of there being one God in the purest sense. Because of course, even the Hindus, though they have many gods that they worship, uh, they do actually have a belief in one supreme being. Really all religions have this as a part of their basic tenets. So it is a matter of taking them back to that basis and establishing the oneness of Allah in the most complete sense. So, our invitation to Islam begins with establishing in the minds of others, of course it should have already been established in our own minds, that Allah is one in all respects. And this is what Prophet Muhammad had said to Mu'adh ibn Jabal, one of his companions, who he sent to Yemen to be the governor over Yemen and the teacher. He told, them that you, told him that you're coming to a people from among the people of the book, people of Yemen were Jews mostly, and the first thing that you should call them to is the oneness of Allah. And of course one might question, but he was sending him to Jews. The Jews already believe in one God. They don't have the problems of the Christians. Three gods in one. So why was he telling them, telling him to call them to the oneness of Allah? Because the oneness of Allah in Islam is more pure than it is in Judaism. Though Judaism is better than many of the others, but still there remains in their concept of the one God, corruption. That corruption can be found in the Bible where they make reference to God repenting for what he thought to do to his people. God coming to the earth and wrestling with Jacob and almost defeated by Jacob had to pull a trick on him to get out of it. Yeah. These kinds of concepts, of course, 
this affects, it, it, it uh, corrupts the concept of the one supreme being who is unique in all aspects. So Judaism, though it does have as its central principle oneness of God, but that has become corrupted. So on one hand we call people to the oneness of Allah with regards to his names, his attributes, his uh, lordship and his worship, that we only worship him alone. And at the same time, in calling to the concept of worshiping God alone, we have to make people understand that for a true believer, the whole of his or her life becomes worship. As Allah stated in the Quran, قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي وَنُسُكِي وَمَحْيَايَ وَمَمَاتِي لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ Say, indeed, my sacrifice, my prayers, my living and my dying are for Allah, the Lord of the worlds. So, when we say that Allah alone deserves worship, it then means that all aspects of our lives should reflect the oneness of Allah. So, our call is to the oneness of Allah. And we then have to clarify for people to better to understand that oneness of Allah in relationship to themselves. Because if after saying yes, we believe in the oneness of Allah, and we still have many religions which speak about the oneness of Allah. We said, okay, these understandings are corrupt, but they say, well, who said? Maybe the Hindu understanding is better. Or maybe the Christian understanding is better. Since we all agree in the concept of one God, you know, why could these others not have been better? Or why can, couldn't we all follow whichever one we choose? Just we choose to be a Christian, but be a good Christian, a sincere Christian, who follows all the teachings and does all the right things and worships God. However, why can't we do it that way? So, God becomes the hub of a wheel, and all of the religions are the spokes leading to the hub. All religions lead to one God, to one goal. Why not? Why does Islam say, no, that model, that picture is false. We reject it. There is only one way. Why? Well, we have to consider human beings. Are human beings, their world society and world community, made up of different races? Well, people say, yes, there's different races. We have um, white race, they call the Caucasoid race. Black, they call Negroid race. Yellow, they call the Mongoloid race. So, yes, we have these races. Oh, where did these, this idea of race come from? Are there really different races of human beings? Or are these so-called races just extensions of tribes? The reality is, of course, that there is only one race, the human race. The superficial differences that we might see in terms of color, you know, uh, facial features or, you know, other superficial aspects, these are all, as I said, superficial. 
The essence of the human being remains the same. No matter what his color, his stature, his features or her features may be, they're still human beings. The reality is that Allah created one race of human beings. The human race. Finish. And if that idea is still embedded in the minds of the people and we need to dig it out, then we give them an example. We say, if such and such a person, we know so and so, they are from the Caucasoid race. They are white as white can be. Blue eyes, blonde hair. They have an illness. They need an operation. And in the course of that operation, they need blood, blood transfusions. Now, they are uh, a positive blood. Now, the family members are O and everything else, but A. Now, the blood from the members of their own family, their brothers, the sisters, the father, the mother, the children, cannot save their lives. However, Somebody from the other end of the spectrum, black. He's black as black can be. But his blood type is a positive. His blood can save that one, that man or that woman's life. That is proof which God has left with us that we are one. Had he willed, he could have made it so that people who have blonde hair and blue eyes all have the same blood type. He could have done it that way. But he didn't. He left this as a sign amongst us. Lest we may be deviated in our understanding of humanity that we are one. We are one human race. So, if there is one God and one human race, does it make sense that that God would then reveal to human beings a number of different religions? Each one saying, our way is the right way. Does that make sense? No. Common sense tells us no. If there is one God and one human race, and that God, as it's stated in the Bible, is not the author of confusion, then that God revealed to human beings one religion. That's what makes sense. Because human beings did not evolve. Adam and Eve were not half monkeys and we are now whole homo sapiens human beings. No. They were human beings in as full a sense of human beings can be as we are. We are no more human than they were. And 10,000 years from now, human beings will be no more human than we are. We are one. Now, technology may affect the way we live, the way we function, how we uh, move around, transportation, communication. Economics, all these kind of things may be influenced by technology. However, the essential emotional, psychological, sociological makeup of the human being has not changed. 
it remains one and the same. No difference. Therefore, the instructions which God revealed are one set of instructions, one basic set of instructions, which will fulfill the needs of human beings from the first time they were created till the last human being on the face of this earth. We don't need many different instructions. Now, yes, due to the fact that Adam and Eve were two people, and they had children, and this is the question comes up, so who did the children marry? Oh, they married each other. <laughs> you know, we don't have to go into any special thinking to figure this one out. They married each other. So it means then the law at that time permitted what we now call incest. Brothers and sisters could marry. They had to. Otherwise, human beings would end with Adam and his children. So the law permitted it. Once the human family grew enough, then the law of incest prohibited marriage between brothers and sisters. So, that was a change. And there have been changes in some of the social laws with regards to uh, human societies over the centuries, over the generations of human beings. However, the essential message of the religion of God, which he revealed to Adam and Eve, that essential message is one message. That essential religion is one religion. That religion is based on the concept that God is one, in the most complete sense, as we spoke of earlier, and that God alone deserves to be worshipped. God alone deserves to be worshipped. This was the religion of submission. When one accepts to worship God alone, then one has submitted his or her will to God. The religion of submission. Submission, of course, in Arabic is Islam. So this is the reason why we can say that the religion which God revealed to human beings from the time of Adam till Muhammad وسلم, was one religion known in Arabic as Islam. Submission to the will of God. So, we have one God. We have one human race. And we have one religion. Now, the question arises. That one religion. Is there one way to follow that one religion? Or are there many ways? Go back to the model of the spoke and the wheel, the hub. Right? We say that Islam, the hub now, this is Islam, 
And the way to follow Islam, there are like the spokes on the wheel. Is that the way it is? If we look at our beginning point, one God, we shifted to one human race, we then shifted to one religion, what makes sense here is that there should also be one way. There is that Tawheed, there is that oneness coming all along, all down every step. If the prophets of God, alayhim salam all called to one religion, they must have called to that one religion according to one way. One way. There was only, there is only one way, there was only one way, and there will be only one way to follow Islam. That is why when Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam informed us that among the signs of the last day will be the return of Prophet Isa alayhi salam. Prophet Jesus will return. What way will he be following? Will he come with a new way? Or will he be following the same way that Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam left behind? He'll be following the same way. Because that same way matches the same way that he brought. There is only one way to follow the religion of Islam. Now, does that mean that people shouldn't have differences? Shouldn't have disagreements? Shouldn't have different interpretations, etc.? Yes, human beings will have that. This without a doubt. We are human beings and we will not all think exactly the same way as we don't all dress exactly the same way we don't all walk the same way we don't all eat the same way we're going to have some variations and some differences but that essential way which we pray for in our daily prayers اِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ show us the straight path the straight path. Sirat al-Mustaqim. That straight path, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud told us or narrated to us that on one occasion, the Prophet Muhammad sat with his companions and he drew a line in the dust. And when he drew this line in the dust, he said, this is the path of Allah. Then he drew at this either side of that straight line a series of other lines like veins on the leaf. You have a central vein and you have some branching veins. And he said these are the paths each one has a devil at the end of it calling people to it. And then he recited the verse from the 6th chapter, verse 153, And this is my straight path. So follow it, and do not follow the other paths, as they would separate you from his path. 
The Prophet Muhammad is here stressing that we must follow one path. The Sirat Al-Mustaqeem. As-Sirat Al-Mustaqeem. The straight path. One. To further emphasize that Allah in the Quran told us وَاَعْتَسِمُوا بَحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا Hold on firmly to the rope of Allah all of you together and do not split up. So Allah cursed the splitting up into groups. For example, He said in Surah Ar-Rum the 30th chapter verses 31 and 32 وَلَا تَكُونُوا مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ مِنَ الَّذِينَ فَرَّقُوا دِينَهُمْ وَكَانُوا شِيَعًا كُلُّ حِزْبٍ بِمَا لَدَيْهِمْ فَرِحُونَ And do not be as one of the pagans of those who split up their religion and became sects, each sect rejoicing with what it had. So we find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cursing this splitting up into sects as an evil, as the way of the pagans, those who worship idols, etc. In another verse 159 of Surah Al-An'am, we find Allah there saying, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ فَرَّقُوا دِينَهُمْ وَكَانُوا شِيَعًا لَسْتَ مِنْهُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ Indeed, those who divide their religion and split up into sects, you, O Muhammad, have nothing to do with them in the least. The Prophet, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, had nothing to do with those who would split up their religion into sects. They are not from the religion which he brought. They have deviated they are on one of the paths of those devils that the Prophet ﷺ spoke about who was calling them away from the path of Allah. And to further emphasize this, Prophet Muhammad ﷺ had said in another hadith authentically reported that those who came before you were split up into a number of different sects. The Jews were split up into 71 different sects. 70 of them would go to hell and one would go to paradise. The Christians were split up into 72. 71 of them would go to hell and one of them would go to paradise. And you, my ummah, my nation, will split up into 73 different sects. Seventy-two of them will go to hell and one will go to paradise. And the Prophet's companions, radiallahu anhum, they asked him, What is that path, O Messenger of Allah? And he said, It is the path that I am on today and you are on. It is the path that we follow, the path that we are on. The path which the Prophet ﷺ was on and the path of his companions. 
And in the Quran, we find Allah further emphasizing the importance of uh, this path, saying, وَمَن يُشَاقِقِ الرَّسُولِ مِن بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ الْهُدَى وَيَتَّبِعَ غَيْرَ سَبِيلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ نُوَلِّهِ مَا تَوَلَّى وَنُصْلِهِ جَهَنَّمْ وَسَاءَتْ مَصِيرًا And whoever opposes the messenger after guidance has been made clear to him and follows a way other than that of the believers, we will leave him to what he chose and will place him in hell, the worst indeed as a destination. Now, Allah said that having already pointed out that opposing the messenger alone guarantees punishment. When he said elsewhere, indeed those who disbelieve and turn away from the path of Allah and oppose the messenger after guidance has been made clear to them, they will not harm Allah in the least and he will cause their actions to become nullified. Yet, in that other verse, we find the condition of following the path of the believers added to following the messenger. This was to stress to Muslims that it is not sufficient to follow the Quran and the Sunnah alone, although this is the foundation of Islam. And Prophet Muhammad had told us, تَرَكْتُ فِيكُمْ أَمْرَيْنِ إِنْ تَمَسَّكْتُمْ بِهِمَا لَنْ تَضِلُّ أَبَدًا I've left with you two things. If you hold on firmly to them, you will never go astray. The book of Allah and my sunnah. In other narrations he said, the book of Allah and my family. So, though he had stated this, and we all adhere to this principle, in fact, all of the various sects that have deviated that is splintered off from Islam, all of them will say we follow the Quran and the Sunnah. Or at least 99% of them. We do have some elements like the Parvezis in Pakistan and elsewhere who say that we only follow the Quran. They deny the Sunnah. Okay, they're clearly off. But many of the other sects will say we follow the Quran and Sunnah. But when you come to look at their deviation and you ask them why have you deviated when you said you follow the Quran and the Sunnah it comes down to a point of interpretation for example the Qadianis the Ahmadis of India and Pakistan who claimed that an individual Mirza Ghulam Ahmed who appeared in the 1800s first claiming that um, he was a defender of Islamic thought, writing against the uh, Orientalist and Christian missionary writings. Then later on he progressed up to be a mujaddid, a reviver of the religion. Then further along, as time passed, then he started to claim he was the Mahdi. And then after that he was claiming he was a prophet. And then later on he claimed that he was Jesus coming back. Claiming that he was receiving revelation. This individual 
their belief for that sect to exist depends on the acceptance of a prophet after Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam though Allah clearly states in the Quran that Muhammad Allah says you O Muhammad are not the father of any of the men Muslim men but you are a messenger of Allah and the seal of the prophethood the seal of the prophethood now when that is presented to a follower of the false prophet Mirza Ghulam Ahmed and you also find this line of argument followed by the followers of the false prophet in America Elijah Muhammad and his reviver Farrakhan right how what does one do with this verse well they say according to the Arabic language if you go to the Arabic dictionary you will find that the word khatam it does mean seal but it also means ring ring like the ring that you wear on your finger so they say well actually you all have misunderstood the use of khatam in this verse really what khatam meant was ring and that as the ring when you put it on the finger it beautifies the hand in the same way Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was the beautification of the prophethood and not the seal this was their line of argument but they say we follow Quran and Sunnah we follow the Quran and the Sunnah. Well, the question now arises. Okay, that is your interpretation. Did the companions of Prophet Muhammad understand the verse that way? That is the question. And of course, they have to admit that they didn't understand it that way. They didn't. Because they narrated so many other statements of the Prophet Muhammad in which he said, La Nabi There is no Prophet coming after me. They narrated these statements. So they well understood that there would be no Prophet after Muhammad In fact, they fought all those who claimed prophethood. Whether it was Musaylama from Yamama or Al Aswad Al Anasi from uh, Jizan from the south, from Yemen, or it was the false prophetess Sajah from Bani Tamim in the north. They fought everyone who claimed prophethood because for them that was apostasy. If you are a Muslim and you claim prophethood, that is apostasy. You have left the religion. So, other than the way of the believers who are the believers that Allah is referring to in that verse when that verse was revealed the believers were the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam the sahaba radiallahu anhum they were the believers so one who, one who opposes the Prophet sallallahu and follows a way other than the way of the sahaba in other words they have understood Islam in a way different from the companions of Prophet Muhammad has understood it 
they have deviated and they will end up in hell. This is what Allah promises from that verse. And Prophet Muhammad had stated with regards to his companions, خَيْرُ النَّاسِ قَرْنِي The best of people are my generation. ثُمَّ الَّذِينَ يَلُونَهُمْ ثُمَّ الَّذِينَ يَلُونَهُمْ Then those who followed them, then those who followed them. Those who followed them, they are referred to as the Tabi'oon. And those who followed them are called Atba'u Tabi'een or Tabi'u Tabi'een. So those first three generations, the Prophet ﷺ praised, gave them a status, gave them a position of honor that Muslims were to hold them in as a way of holding on to the purity of the religion. Their way, their understanding, that is the only correct understanding of Islam. And that is what keeps the religion of Islam in its purity. Once you open the door for every person, every individual to interpret the religion as he or she feels, then you have now opened the door to what happened to Christianity. So, the one way is the way of the companions of the Prophet And we need to know that way. It is the way, as I said, which preserves Islam in its purity. Now, some people might say, well, this is something like the Amish. You know, they have these groups of uh, Christian groups where they are stuck in the way of their ancestors from the 15th century, where they still wear the same kind of hats, the women wear the same kind of dresses, they don't use electricity, they don't, you know, drive automobiles, everything is horse and buggy and, you know. They keep the same beliefs and they dress the same way. Well, we, in, when we say follow the one way, we're not talking about the one way in the sense of sticking exactly as those people stuck. That we have to live the way people lived 1,400 years ago. Turn off the electricity, go back to candles, no air conditioners, no heaters, you know, no. Technology is not our enemy. It is not a way against the way of God. It is a part of knowledge which God has revealed to human beings to benefit from. So we don't have a problem with technology. We don't have a problem, you know, with uh, modernization. As long as the modernization does not go beyond the bounds which have been set by Islamic teachings, by the Quran and the Sunnah, as it was understood by the companions of the Prophet So, the basic call then, whether we are calling non-Muslims to Islam, or whether we are calling Muslims back to Islam, is a call to the one God who is unique in his oneness, who does not share his attributes with any of his creatures, with his creation. 
Everything besides him is creation and he is the sole creator. Nothing takes place in this world without his permission. He is in control of everything. Whether good or whether evil, all of it is by his permission. The one God. Since he is the controller of all, all good comes from him. All that we perceive to be evil is by his permission. Then, logically, he is the only one we should worship. He is the only one we should call on for help. Because only he can ultimately help. And, since he is one, and the human race is one human race, these divisions which human beings have made for political reasons, for ideological reasons, we know they are all false. We are one human race. God revealed for that one race a single religion. One religion. He is not the author of confusion. He did not seek to confuse his creatures. He revealed to them one religion. A clear religion, free from confusion, distortion, etc. The same religion which he revealed to Adam and Eve is the same religion he revealed to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Jesus and to Muhammad. May Allah's peace and blessings be on all of them. One religion. That religion in Arabic is submission to the will of God. Because to worship God ultimately means to submit to His will. To do what is pleasing to Him. Worship ultimately is doing what is pleasing to God. Whether the act is completely focused on pleasing God or it may be focused on Things of this world, whether it is business, it is trade, it is uh, entertainment, it is whatever. But we accomplish it in a way which is pleasing to God. And in doing so, it then becomes a form of worship. And the way to follow that one religion, as we said is only one way. As God did not reveal many religions, the Prophet, may God's peace and blessing be upon him, did not teach many different ways to follow the religion of God. Now, we have inherited some divisions amongst us. Maybe the most obvious one that everybody knows about are the schools of Islamic law, known as the madhabs. When you ask a person, why do you do what you do? You, they say, well, I'm a Hanafi. And another person says, well, I do it this way because I'm a Shafi. Another one says, because I'm a Hanbali, I do it that way. And the other one says, because I am a, uh, what was the last one, Maliki, I do it this way. So we have these differences that we have inherited. Now, there was a time when Muslims 
turn these differences into different religions virtually where some quote-unquote scholars amongst the Hanafis ruled that it was not permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'i. For a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'i was impermissible, not permissible. Once you have that state, you have different religions, isn't it? Once you reach the state where people were not praying behind each other, around the Kaaba in Mecca, there were four prayer places for imams of the different madhabs to lead those following their madhab in prayer, one after another. You had four different prayers for Fajr, for Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, and Isha. For the five times daily prayers, four prayers were conducted at the Kaaba. What do we have here? That's like four different religions. Where did that come from? Surely it didn't come from Prophet Muhammad This is something that people invented. This was, this was a distortion. This was a deviation. This was in clear contradiction to the prohibitions of the Quranic text. Prohibitions of the Prophet himself. Because if we go back to those whom those schools are attributed, we go back to Abu Hanifa and we ask Abu Hanifa, what is your madhab? You think Abu Hanifa is going to say, I follow the Hanafi madhab? No. And if we ask Imam Malik, what was your madhab? You think he's going to say, I follow the Maliki madhab? No. And if you ask uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal or Imam al-Shafi'i, what was your madhabs? You think they're going to say we were Shafi'is, we were Hanbalis? No. None of them said that. And if you ask their teachers, those who came before them, all the way up to the Sahaba, if you ask them what was their madhab, what do you think they all would say? Somebody tell me. Their madhab was the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Madhab meaning way of thinking, way of doing things, etc. It's almost like sunnah. Madhab means almost like same meaning, virtually the same meaning as sunnah. So they all followed one way. The way of Rasulullah sallallahu And the same thing actually if you ask Imam al-Bukhari who came after the four Imams to whom the schools are attributed. If you ask Imam Bukhari or Imam uh, Abu Dawood or Tirmidhi or Nasai what were your madhabs? You think they're going to say we're Shafi's, we're Hanafi's, we're so? They all would say we follow the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa so they were following one way. And of course as human beings, in trying to follow that one way, there will be differences. Now these differences, some of them were due to a lack of information. Where there is 
correct information available now, then those differences should be discarded. Some of those differences were based on misinterpretations, different interpretations. Some were correct and some were incorrect. In fact, when Imam Malik was asked, when Imam Malik was asked, if a person followed a Sahabi, a companion of the Prophet, in everything that he did, would he be on the correct path? What do you think Imam Malik said? No. He said no. You're thinking he should say yes. Why not? Because this was a companion of the Prophet. And it is said that the Prophet ﷺ said, My companions are like stars. Ashabi ken nujum. Any one of them that you follow, you'll be rightly guided. But this is a fabricated statement attributed to Prophet Muhammad It's not true. It is not true. Imam Malik said to that question, No, you will not be on the right path unless that companion was himself on the right path, doing the right thing. Because the truth is one. The truth is one. And the only one free from error is the one in that grave. Now Imam Malik was the Imam of Medina. So when he pointed to the grave, he was pointing to the grave of who? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Only the Prophet of Allah was free from error. He is the only one that we can say if you follow him in everything that he said and did, you will be on the right path. He is the only one. Every other person is a human being. As the Prophet Muhammad said, Kullu bani Adam khatta. All of Adam's descendants make mistakes. And the best of those who make mistakes are those who constantly turn back to Allah in repentance. That is the bottom line. So only Rasulullah is to be followed, as we say, in that absolute sense. Whatever he said and did, instructed, we follow it. And we will be on the right path if we do it. Everybody else we have to weigh their decisions, their rulings, etc. according to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Where they are correct, they are supported by the Qur'an and Sunnah, we follow it and say that is the correct way. Where they have deviated, where they have made an error, because they were human beings. Now their deviation is not deliberate, it is human error. Where we have found an error, we cannot say, well, no, I think I'm still going to follow him because he is my imam. And for me not to follow him is disrespectful. No. No. The same imam said, the same scholar said, it is not permissible for someone to follow one of our opinions when a saying of Prophet Muhammad has come to him or her. It is not permissible. That is deviation. If a saying comes, 
you have to give up the opinion. An example of that was in the case of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, one of the companions of the Prophet, Muhammad Sallallahu Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was known as one of the jurists of the Sahaba. There were four of them, they called them the Abadilah, Al-Arba'ah, the four Abdullahs. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Umar, and Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As. There are the four, the leading jurists among the companions of the Prophet Muhammad Now, Abdullah ibn Umar, remember he is the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab, the second caliph, the Khalifa, after Abu Bakr. He is teaching about Hajj. And he relates to the people that Hajj, Tamattu'ah, combining Hajj and Umrah is the correct and the best way to make Hajj. He's teaching that. And he's quoting statements of the Prophet Muhammad to that effect. After he finished his explanation, some of his students questioned him. They said to him, uh, Your father and Abu Bakr, they said that we should really only do Hajj Ifrad or Hajj Qiran, which the Prophet ﷺ did. You shouldn't do Hajj Tamattu'ah. Abdullah ibn Umar, when he heard them say that, he became extremely angry. And he said to them, Woe be on you! Are they more preferable to you than what is in Allah's book and the sunnah of his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which he left among his companions and his ummah. I see you falling into destruction. I say Allah's Messenger said, and you are saying Abu Bakr and Omar forbade. This is Abdullah ibn Omar. That is how staunch they were. He is in fact pointing out that Abu Bakr and Omar were in error on this issue. And the fact that they would challenge what he was saying based on their opinion when he is quoting from Rasulullah and from the Quran itself, it was something unacceptable. So, the way is one. These differences that we have that exist amongst us, those which are cultural and which don't touch the religion, they're acceptable. We can dress in different ways. We can hold our functions in different ways. We can build our houses in different ways. These cultural things are permissible. But where we have differences, which now split our ranks. Where, for example, 
in the Shafi'i Madhab, it states that if a person, a male, touches a female by accident, or touches a female, accident or not, his and her state of wudu or purity, ritual purity, is broken. You have no wudu, meaning you cannot pray until you go and make wudu. However, in the Hanafi school, it states that if a man and woman touch each other accidentally or otherwise, their state of wudu is still intact. Meaning you can go and pray after touching a woman. So, when the Shafi'i sees a Hanafi man accidentally touch a woman, then he goes and wants to lead prayer. Will that Shafi'i pray behind him? He said, no, this Imam doesn't have wudu. Isn't it? Because the reality, some people say, well, no. What we'll do is, we'll say, the Shafi'i is correct, the Hanafi is correct. They're all correct. This is the way out. But, for us to accept that they're all correct is like the Christian accepting that God is three in one. Similar. Because the mind tells you one plus one plus one equals three. But they must believe that one plus one plus one equals one. So it means what? You must turn off your intelligence. And you just accept this blindly. God is three, yet he is one. So, the madhab fanatic, right? the one who fanatically follows a school of law, who now holds, everybody is correct. He is saying that it is possible for a person to be in a state of wudu and not be in a state of wudu at the same time. And you know what some people do, what Shafi'is do? Uh, I've heard this from in a number of places, and there are so-called scholars amongst people making this fatwa. If as a Shafi'i you're going to make Hajj, they say to the people before they go to make Hajj, they say, make the intention to be a Hanafi. You know, you make the intention of switching your madhab to the Hanafi madhab during Hajj because there's so many people, you're bound to touch a woman. And women, you're bound to touch a man. So in order to save you the problems of, you know, being touching, we're going to make tawaf, right? You know, during Hajj, you're making tawaf and you accidentally touch a man or a woman, touch a woman, you have to go make wudu. And maybe three or four hours later before you can come and finish doing your tawaf. So to save you the, the, the pressures, the, the problems, they say, make the intention to temporarily become a Hanafi during Hajj. After you come back, then you can get back to your Shafi'i. This is ludicrous. But it's commonly followed. Many people. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. This is not knowledge. This is ignorance. We go back to the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and there is the answer. 
Aisha radiallahu anha, Umm Salama and other wives of the Prophet said that he used to kiss them and go and lead the prayer. He used to kiss his wives, open the door of the house which led straight into the masjid, he would go and lead the prayer. So what is the answer? The answer is that if a man touches a woman, his wudu is not broken. Finish. End of story. We're out of that catch-22 situation. And in that way we have to approach the other differences. Where they are resolvable and you will find that 90% of these differences, when you go back and look at the evidences, they are resolvable. But there is an element, 10% or 20%, which has to do with different possible interpretations, both of which are firmly supported by the Quran and Sunnah, etc. In that case, we have two ways of doing something. But what you will find is that when we go to these things, there will not be two opposite ways. Not ways where one is saying halal and the other one is saying haram. Or one is saying you have wudu, the other one says you doesn't have wudu. No, these are opposites which cannot coexist. But differences which can coexist, yes. And that's what we have to find that one path. Resolve the differences and come back to following one path. Now, practically speaking, what does a person do who lives in India? Or Pakistan, where everybody there is Hanafi. Or you live in Egypt, everybody there is Shafi. Or Indonesia, everybody is Shafi. Malaysia, everybody is Shafi. What do you do? Well, you go according to the knowledge that is available to you. But, if you travel, you reach elsewhere, or some visiting scholars come through or whatever, and new knowledge comes to you, solid information from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and you find that it contradicts what you have learned, and what you have learned is not supported by Qur'an and Sunnah, or it's weak, the connection is weak, it's clear to you, then you must follow what is clearly from the Qur'an and Sunnah, which has been brought to you to the best of your ability. And of course this will vary from person to person, from situation to situation. And the reality is that we are all following and we are all trusting. So I'm not saying that anybody is free from following. Now, there are people who are completely independent, they can just go to Quran and Sunnah, they don't have to. No, everybody depends on somebody else. Scholars of this generation depend on the scholars of the previous generation. And those of that those before them, and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, the one way of Islam is the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it was understood by the companions of the Prophet Muhammad Now, that generation, the generation of the Prophet and those who come after them and those who come after them, those early three generations have traditionally been referred to by the scholars, the imams, etc. as 
the Salaf. They are referred to as the Salaf. Even Prophet Muhammad used the term Salaf, not specifically in this context, but he had said to Aisha that I am the best Salaf for you. So the term is there. It's not something newly invented, though people tend to think of it now. You hear Salaf and Salafi and all. You think, oh, here comes another thing. Here comes another madhab. <laughs> you know, they were coming with something else. But no, this is not the case. Now, it's not to say that there may not be some groups who turn this concept of following the way of the companions and their understanding into a limited group concept you know of a fixed nature where they may sit up as judges for everybody else to say even though you say that is the way I follow and that's what I want to be they say no you're not you cannot they're the ones to decide who are and who aren't no that type that element which has arisen amongst us Right? Who seek to label people and chop people off lists of who can be listened to and who can't be listened to and they have a, their whole effort and, and, and activities involved in attacking people, destroying people. No. That is not the way of the Salaf. That is something else. They may use the term and they may in, you know, convey certain amounts of information which is correct, which is related to the Salaf, but their methodology is not the way of the Salaf. So, what I am saying, that the correct way is what is referred to as the way of the Salaf, the Salafi way as a principle and not a group or organization card-carrying members only no it is a way of understanding the Quran and the Sunnah that it be in accordance with the understanding of the early generation of righteous scholars of Islam that is the one and only way Regardless of what fiqh one has been trained with, what uh, school one was trained under, as long as one approaches Islam from that perspective, then that is the correct way. That is the way of the companions and those who came after them and those who came after them and those who follow that way until our time. So. In conclusion, as we began our talk, the way is one. We say that we all as Muslims have to recognize Tawheed in all aspects of our understanding of Islam. Tawheed, the oneness, the unique oneness of God of humankind, of the religion, Islam, and of following that religion. And I pray that Allah give us all the wisdom to 
understand that way and to apply it in our lives and to invite others to that understanding which ultimately will unify our ranks because our ranks can only be unified on the truth and that one way represents the truth We thank you very much, dear brother. Uh, it has been a lot of inf information for us, and I hope that it has been beneficial, and it will be beneficial to most of us, or all of us. The, the, the points that he has made here is, is something that we have been trying to put into the people who ever attend to, uh, to our programs on a monthly basis. Alhamdulillah, we have a large crowd today, and we would like to see this crowd, inshallah, at every one of our da'wah programs. It is a program of information, whereby you can learn, you can ask questions, and in that way, you can help even to give the da'wah. At this point, it is very close to the salat, and we may have just a couple of minutes if there is any question, I think you would just two questions, just two questions, if there is any, very short questions. Okay, brother's question, how do we relate to or deal with people who, when we bring them an authentic book describing prayer, like Sifatul Salat and Nabi, and we bring them a book like on Tawheed, like Kitabu Tawheed, and they say, you are Wahhabi. They throw out this term. Well, the best way to deal with that, if the person is relatively open-minded, is to ask them, what is a Wahhabi? This is the best way. Now, what you will find in most cases, is that they really don't know what a Wahhabi is. You know? So then you go to let them understand what is a Wahhabi. And then once you have made it clear to them that in fact those who are called Wahhabis are really those who are trying to follow Islam in its purity according to the Quran and the Sunnah as it was understood by the Sahaba, then inshallah if they are honest, they will accept you. Question from the sisters? Okay, sisters question. The Jews who are going to paradise. Prophet Muhammad said 71 sects of the Jews, 70 in hell and one going to paradise. Who are those one? Who are the one? They are the one who followed Prophet Musa, alayhi salam. Those who followed their prophets, right? Those who followed Isa. Right? They represent the one who are going to paradise amongst the Christians. So it's whoever followed the prophets when they came and gave the message, they're on the wrong, right path going to paradise. One more question from the brothers. Our brother's question, most people follow the scholars, the ulama. 
what effort has been made by the ulama to come towards a unified position we say I say the position of the Salaf well different efforts have been made and are being made you have the Mujamma' al-Fiqhi which gathers in Mecca where scholars from different parts of the Muslim world gather they look at issues that are raised and study them looking for the evidences and make rulings on the basis of those evidences this is a part of that process of coming back together you know and it is a it is a big job and uh, we can say really the process of educating the masses as well as many who are from the class of ulama to this proper understanding is an ongoing process and Allah knows you know when it will reach fruition but we know that inshallah uh, that realization is growing it's increasing Many Muslims, for example, who come here to North America, who came from different parts of the Muslim world, where they only did things one way. Then they came here, all of a sudden they're with a bunch of other Muslims doing things all these other different ways. Now they have to cope. Now they have to deal. You know, and they have to adjust to this circumstance. And in the course of educating, new books are available, Fiqh sunnah and other books like this, which don't necessarily follow one madhab. You know, people are getting more and more educated to other uh, the approach which is based more on the evidence as opposed to uh, schools by themselves. I'll take one more question from the sisters. Okay, um, sisters question with regards to certain attributes of Allah mentioned in the Quran or perhaps in the Sunnah which implies Something of human action or humanness, like Allah's hand, or Allah running to you, or Allah being above his throne, or Allah descending to the first heaven, you know, these types of attributes. There, one approach to it is to explain away these attributes and say Allah doesn't have a hand, and Allah doesn't run. And Allah doesn't descend to the first heaven, etc., 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 by saying, no, it is not He who descends, but His mercy which descends. It is not Allah running, but the, His mercy hastens to you. You know, the different interpretations like this. Or, which was the way of the Salaf, was to say that whatever Allah has said about Himself is real. But its reality we cannot comprehend. If Allah said He had a hand, we don't have the right to say He doesn't have a hand. But, we do not perceive of the hand as like our own hands. Just as when somebody says, the hands of the clock point to one o'clock. We don't think of hands like our hands. We don't have a problem accepting hands is different. We use the same term hand, but it has many other meanings in the English language itself. So why do, should we have a problem in accepting that Allah's hands are over the group, but it doesn't mean hands like our hands? If we accept that Allah is living, Allah said He is Hai, Al Hai. If we say He is not living, 
Because some people go and say, well, no, no, we don't want to give that his attributes. So he's not living and he's not dead. What is he? He's not existing. No. Allah said he's living, he's living. But his living is not like our living. Our living depends on others, depends on Allah. Our living has a beginning point in time. Our living has an ending point in time. So our living is in a different way. And as we can accept that Allah is a living God, and we are living, but His living is much different from ours, it's absolute, whereas ours is finite. In the same way, we can accept any other description of Allah similarly. So when we, when we read, the Prophet ﷺ says that in the last third of the night, this is the best time to make dua. In the last third of the night, everybody is sleeping, get up, make tahajjud, and turn to Allah. At that time, Allah descends to the first heaven and asks for all those who are praying so He could answer their prayers. We believe that Allah descends to the first heaven, yet He is above His throne. Those people who have a problem with it are those who imagine Allah like a human being. Who when He comes down from the third floor, He's no longer on the third floor, he's on the first. He can't be on the first and at the third at the same time. So since he came down, he's no longer on the, the third. So that's what they're saying. Well, if Allah comes down to the first heaven, then he's no longer above the throne. But hey, that's human beings. That's human beings. When you did that, you made Allah like his creation. And Allah, as he said, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like him. And he is the all-hearing and the all-seeing. So he still at the same time says he hears and sees, we hear and see, but his hearing and seeing is not like our hearing and seeing. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, ashadu ala ilaha ant, astaghfiruka wa tubulaikum.